Welcome to Theology with Dr. A.M. Hackney. This podcast is focused on the vocational calling of Christians to be theologians. You'll find episodes on systematic theology, spiritual formation, scriptural interpretation, and ethics. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Hackney. In today's episode, we're going on a field trip outside the studio. Have you ever wondered what it is like to be in a class with Dr. H? This fall, I'm teaching a catechetical series in the context of my local church that explores what it means to be human. In this week's class, we're taking a deep dive into the problem of idol worship. Come for the conversation about college football and stay as we explore the different things that we worship and what we ask of them. started. This seems like a slow going morning. I'm not quite sure what that's about. For a minute I thought, did the time change and I didn't know about it? We're not quite there yet, right? Okay. Remember, I come from a place where we don't change the clock, so it's still very new for me. There we go. (laughs) A better place. That's right. That's right. Well, we're going to get started and the late stragglers will just have to miss out on the beginning, but that's okay. Grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. And let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Exodus chapter 20. Timothy's the one that's ready, so are you good to read for us? Does that work? Uh, Exodus 20, just 1 to 6, and then the word of the Lord, and we'll say thanks be to God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Chuck Hill, will you pray for us? Father, we thank you so much that you love us As that you bless Amanda this morning as she teaches us, and as we split up the groups and speak and talk, I pray that you would be with us and guide our words. Um, may all be done to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Fantastic. Well, we are officially in the Ten Commandments now. Yay! Yay! This has been a very long time. I don't know. I don't know. You play with you play with switches, and I'll keep talking. Does that work? You put them in darkness. There we go. So to get us started, um, we're going to be a small group uh, for this one. I was going to break us up, but we're not going to do that. I have a very short video that uh, I'd like to get us thinking, and. Talk about stepping on the third rail, given that we live in Clemson. This could be the most controversial thing I've ever done in catechesis class, ever. So do not throw rotten tomatoes at me 
Instead, save it for the comments, and we'll have some really feisty conversation. Does that work? So I'm just going to pause the, this um, because I'm not quite sure if we're going to violate copyright by having this play through my mic. So hold on one second. Oh, come on in, come on in. So are there tomatoes to be thrown at me? I've stepped on the third rail of college football in the south. So, do you think he actually makes a fair comparison between idolatry and sports? Why or why not? This, we are a small group this morning, so we're just going to keep this together. What do you think? Yes. People's emotions get ruled by sports sometimes, right? Now, okay, so this is, I don't know if this is the case down here, but in Canada, when um, a, a team wins the Stanley Cup, which is the, the hockey championships, there's rioting and damage in the streets. Is that something that happens just in Canada, or does that happen down here? Even in college towns. Okay, I'm just very confused by that. Your team wins, let's destroy the town. I'm not quite sure what that's about. My sister, she may or may not have participated when UNC won the NCAA. <laughs> Is that football? Oh, well, it would be basketball. Thank you. Okay, remember, I don't speak sport other than hockey, so. What's, what's the Clemson fan like thing? What is their like, you know you're a Clemson fan if you? Have an IQ under 90. <laughs> 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 Where's those I'm back in the work on that one. Okay, <laughs> let me reframe that. My Chuck, redeem this for me. I'm not getting in trouble for that Chuck's comment, but, but Chuck, tell them about Saskatchewan Rough Rider fans. What do they put on their heads? Okay, you, you know that uh, you are a hardcore Rough Rider fan if you wear uh, a watermelon football helmet. Oh yeah, that's good. You are double a fan, you are like super fan if it's made from a real watermelon instead of plastic. <laughs> Dripping down your face, yes. the juice. So does Clemson, do Clemson fans have the equivalent of a watermelon on your head? No? None of us here probably are diehard. Yeah. Okay. My outsider perspective is Clemson fans are like Landon Gentry. It's a lot of like orange polos and like, you know. <laughs> 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 right, which may be really good, but like as an outside perspective, like I don't see like watermelons on heads or golf carts, yeah. polos or <laughs> So, so when, when I was moving down here, I was told by, so I had a college student who actually got to play for the CFL, which is the Canadian Football League, which is like your NFL, but we have different rules in Canada. So Canadian football and American football are different, but they're not soccer, like they're still football. And he was, when he found out that we were moving to Clemson, he's like, you are moving to the Mecca of college football. Like, he's like, I'm going to come and see you so that I can go to a Clemson game. He's like, you have no idea. You think the Rough Riders are a big deal in Saskatchewan. There is nothing to college football. And supposedly, now this is his take as a Canadian. 
He said that college football is bigger than the NFL. Yes. 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 So what's the line, as Janet was saying? When is it idolatry? When is it just a passionate interest? When is it a hobby? How do we make that distinction? When is it compulsive? Is it compulsion? That's all you think about. Okay. When you don't go to church Sunday because you're hungover from the Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what's the idol there? <laughs> the football or football? <laughs> How do we cultivate that form of idol worship in our culture? I think it has to do also with all of the things that kind of come with it. I mean, okay. like it's, you're not just going to a football game. Right. You know, you're starting Friday wearing the solid orange, you're planning your tailgate, you're getting up, you're making your food, you're, you know, right. getting your groceries, getting your, you know, beverages. Right. You get down there, you get your tailgate spot, it's an all-day thing. So it's not it's not just the game, it's everything that kind of goes mm-hmm. with it. And then after the game, it's the post-game, it's the watching the interviews, you know, so it's this whole big thing. So what I'm hearing you say is it involves practices yeah. and community. Yeah. Yeah. So community, I feel like, can be a very big part of it. Right. Yeah. The fellowship. I'm told tailgating is like a really big thing. Like people see each other only when they come and tailgate at football games. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. Yeah. Plus, if you're wearing the same team shirt as someone else, you're connected. That's not a stranger anymore. Okay. Yeah. I I wore a Tennessee hat to work uh, (laughs) in Greenville. Okay. Years and years ago. Tennessee. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So the Anglican church that we were a part of back home was much more formal and liturgical than, than we are down here. So we had choirs with robes, and, and the priests wore robes, and the servers wore robes, and all of that. And there was one Sunday where it was Grey Cup Sunday, which is like your Super Bowl, but for Canadian football. It's called the Grey Cup. And it was going to be that evening. Had no bearing on church whatsoever. But half of the congregation was in Rough Rider Green. And so the priest made some comment about really appreciating the fact that the liturgical season was green because they matched. And then he he sort of made a jab. He goes, you know, this is where vestments are actually really helpful and robes are really helpful because it sort of makes us, it, it doesn't matter what we're wearing. And the entire choir stood up and lifted their red robes and they were all wearing Rough Rider gear underneath their robes. <laughs> so even in terms of church, like our culture, you can't avoid the Rough Rider reality, which I'm assuming would be the equivalent of like Clemson down here. But I'm hearing that there are not Clemson fans in Clemson, so that's kind of an interesting well, thing. A lot of it with college football is local and where you're from. Gotcha. My dad ran track in Tennessee. He was okay. in Neyland's home. He had a visceral, he knew the athletes that won the national championship in 1951. So he made right. disciples. He made disciples, yes indeed. <laughs> I was born in Knoxville, but we moved to Atlanta. Right. Yeah. Yes, I was. But I mean, you know, we, it, it's, I'm from Tennessee. Right. I was born there, and so I waved the other orange. <laughs> you know, but it, it's, it's, a lot of it is local. So your other fans in Clemson are from other places or gotcha. went to school in other places. Yeah. Jan, did you go to the University of Texas? Where'd you go? A&M. Oh, so you <laughs> But now, 
Oh, so you can't be friends then? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> Not on game day. <laughs> so, so whatever the sport thing is, so I'm going to translate it to hockey for, 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 for me being a Canadian. There's practice, there's ritual, and there's community. These are thick practices related to it. We are what we worship. And all of these things draw not just, you know, it's a fun activity to do. They draw our practices and our heart, and it sh they actually shape our worldview. And, and let's talk about the money too. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's really interesting. So, so Chuck and I have experienced this raising kids. What do you do when all the sports practices and games are on Sunday morning? And here we are navigating and trying to teach our kids that church matter that the practice is related to going to church and being part of church and the church community matters and we're coming up with a competing telos and a competing practice that's right smack at the same time. And so as parents, we're constantly living in this tension of, what do we do? And we don't want to say to our kids, I'm sorry, honey, you can't play soccer because it's at the same time as church or whatever we're doing. And it becomes this battle and this tension that's at the heart of thinking through what do we worship and why. Where your heart is, that's where you're going to worship things. And so we live in this balance. And I know we're ragging on sports, but it could be anything, right? I am a Whedon fan. Buffy, Angel, sci-fi stuff. We could do this same video, but with Comic-Con and have the exact same reality. We dress up, there are rituals, there are tears when you finally get to meet that star, right? And so don't hear me ragging on football, right? But we live in a culture that has idols because there are things in our culture that is shaping what we love and what we do. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today. All of that to say, but let's take a look at your handout. Okay, Chuck, I need, I need to just keep one of my handouts for myself. I need to stop doing that. So Israel was called to worship the one true God. There's, there's a, a prayer in Deuteronomy called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was a prayer that Israel recited multiple times a day, taught their children, this was their creedal statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, their Lord, the, uh, uh, the Lord is one. And what we see as we were following through the Exodus narrative last week, as soon as they get up out of Egypt, they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're wanting to go back. What happens shortly after Exodus 20, that's sort of the culmination of this, we don't want to follow God. Golden the golden calf. And what we see is this temptation to worship other things other than the one true God is going to be the lot in life for Israel, right? My kids and I, we are currently in the book of Judges. Oh my goodness, going through the book of Judges with kids, <laughs> it's violent. And I said to the kids, I said, you need to picture Judges as a spiral. It sort of, it, it devolves. 
they keep getting rescued, but the time of peace keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter. The heroes, the judges who save them are less and less moral as we get through. And it's really interesting because at the end of the book of Joshua, uh, the, 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 the narrator says that an Israel worshiped Yahweh all the days that Joshua was alive. Then you get to Joshua 1, and the first thing we see is they are now walking away. And so there is this ensnaring reality of idolatry for Israel over and over again. And on your handout, I've just listed some of the false gods that Israel um, was seduced by. We have Baal. This is the big one, right? And probably the best example of this is the scene at Mount Carmel. What happens at Mount Carmel? Yeah, yeah. So who, which prophet is it? Okay, and what happens? It's basically Yahweh versus Baal, and who wins? Yahweh. Yahweh. <laughs> Does that change anything, though, for the Israelites? No, they still keep flirting with Baal, right? So we see, we see that all the way through. And what's really interesting is Baal is the, the god of rain, thunder, and fertility. He's the god of signs and of life. Right? And so it makes sense that they're attracted to the showy God. Right? So we have Baal. We also have Marduk, also called Bel. And this is where Babylonian, um, the Babylonian pantheon gets really uh, complicated. In some places, Marduk and Bel are two separate gods. And at some points, they're actually like a syncretic, uh, uh, syncreti uh, what's the word? Syncretistic combination of Marduk-Bel. So I put Bel in, in brackets there. He's the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon. We see it in Jeremiah, and we also see it in the, in the Greek Septuagint uh, version of the book of Daniel. Daniel, we have some extra stories there, uh, and the story of Bel and the dragon is an example of what's going on there. So clearly, as they end up in exile in Babylon, there are some of them that are actually worshiping the gods in their new land, right? Who else have we got on that list? We've got Nebu or Nebo. He's the son of Marduk. He's the Babylonian god of writing, wisdom, trade, and commerce. We see him referenced in Isaiah 46. He's important because part of what Israel wants to do is they want to be among the nations. They want to be prosperous. So of course you're going to pray to the god of trade and commerce, right? They want to expand out, right? Especially because they're not nearly as well situated as like the Phoenicians, for example, because the Phoenicians are a seafaring people. They have a lot more opportunity for, for, for trade. And then, and then, we have Asherah, the female deity on our list today. In the Canaanite system, uh, a male god always needed a female counterpart. And even though Israel knew, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, uh, there was only one God. They decided that God needed a mate. And so very often Israel would put an Asherah pole in the sanctuary right beside the altar because God needs a mate. And so we see Asherah poles all over the place. And what we end up seeing is we end up seeing Asherah poles and altars to Baal in the at the same time as well. So it's, it's sort of the choose whichever God is going to give you the most favor at any given time. It's very much a sense of manipulation and a sense of uh, what is the way in which I can get what I need. There's sort of that sense. 
Just to give you an example of this, since I've been in Judges and it's on my mind, turn to Judges for a second. Can I just say, don't hide hard passages from your kids. They actually do really well with the violent passages. And, and as much as we try to explain the difficult things away, the kids are all into it. So don't try to shelter them from it. Just read scripture and, and see what comes of it. Because I'm having some great conversations with my kids as we go through Judges. But let's turn to Judges. Turn to, I don't want to do the verse that I put there. Turn to Judges chapter 6. brave to sort of jump around passages for me? Who wants to read and sort of follow a, a path of, we're not going to read the whole thing, we're just going to highlight some passages here. Okay, Ben, can you read verse 1? The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Okay, so they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They're not worshiping Yahweh, right? And then um, verse 6, Benjamin. Keep going. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites, in whose land Okay, we have this echo back to Exodus 20. I am the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, right? Jump down to Gideon. Gideon is about to be called. Uh, read verse 12 and then keep going for a little bit. Go back to verse 1 for a second. The sons of Israel did what was evil on the side of the Lord. Right? Keep going, Benjamin. And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Okay. Has the Lord forsaken them, or have they forsaken the Lord? Oh, right? There's something really interesting there. So, so Gideon is, is being called, the whole thing. And then, uh, 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 jump over to verse 25. where there is Baal worship and Asherah worship. Whoo, that's fascinating. And then he's supposed to build an altar to the Lord, and then the altar of Baal is destroyed in the, in the, the next part of the chapter, right? It's, it's everywhere, including in this house of Gideon. Like, Gideon is not untouched by the sin and brokenness of the people of Israel, right? He's living in a house that has active Baal and Asherah worship, right? 
Now, it's really interesting. If you keep going in the narrative, uh, people get wind that these altars have been destroyed and they're sort of up in arms. And Gideon's dad basically says, then let Baal save himself. So then you have the question of how active was Gideon's dad in actually worshiping these things, or was it just sort of the cultural norm to have these gods in your house? There's all kinds of interesting plays going on here, right? But it's, it's just, it's, they're steeped in it. There is no escaping it. So much so that when we get to the book of Isaiah, we have Isaiah who goes on a rant about the foolishness of idolatry. So let's turn there. I like this passage. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to read 9 to 20, and if your Bible's like my Bible, it gave me a really helpful heading, The Folly of Idolatry. That's where we're going to be. Does somebody want to read 9 to 20 for us? Fantastic. So what, what do you see there? What, why is idolatry foolish, according to Isaiah? Because it profits nothing. Okay. He almost says it's illogical. Yeah. It was like purely logical. <laughs> yeah. Repetitive. Repetitive, yeah. The power of idol comes from our strength. Right, right. 
Okay. Okay. Say that again louder so we pick it up for the people who are not here and going to listen to the podcast after. Say that again. The power of the idol comes from our strength, not from the God. In other words, all idolatry is actually worship of the self. It really is. Which brings us to John Calvin. On your handout, you have... That's a segue. That's a segue, yes. I'm not saying John Calvin. We shouldn't worship him. Um, I'm not a Calvinist, so I can say that without being ironic. Um, what I want you to do is I want you in groups of four or five, this looks like a group of four right there, look at that. Um, read this quote by John Calvin, and then answer the questions in the chart on the next side. Have a good conversation about idolatry and how we put ourselves in the place of God. Does that work? And go. Well, let's come back together. Let's come back together. I, I had to shorten up our time because we all were late this morning, so I, I, I lost a good seven minutes at the beginning. Um, but, but just shout out some of the idols in our culture today. What did you get? Youth. Youth. Money. Money. Success. Success. Self-fulfillment. Yep. Sex. Yep. Popularity. What's that? The state. The state. Okay. How about family? Oh, yeah. Can we turn family into an idol? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Church. Honestly, we do sometimes. We actually do that. Yes. Yeah. We can actually turn the church into an idol. Yeah. Which seems really weird because you think it wouldn't be, but it, it is. so much when people in the church hurt you. Right. You don't realize that it's still made up of people. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Two, to just highlight, um, one, because of the potlucks that we're having this fall, it, 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 it connects at several points during our catechesis class, but we are doing a series on sex related to our, our Christian vision of, of marriage and sexuality and what does it mean to be a Christian in a culture that affirms homosexuality and in a culture that's having its transgender moment. There's a way in which sex is something that we worship and you are not fully human if you're not having any, right? You are, you are nothing if you're not having sex. And ultimately, it ends up being the idol of self-pleasure. My pleasure is what I'm seeking after and worshiping and validating. It's very self-focused, even within Christian marriage, unfortunately. And what we saw with Luke's talk and as, and as we continue to have our potlucks, the Christian vision of sexuality and marriage is always to the other. It's always expressed outwards, especially with having children, right? If, if, if sex and marriage is about procreation, it's about life that comes from us, but then is outside of us, those children that we have to let go of, right? Same thing with homosexuality. Um, a, a, a partnered same-sex couple is, is in, their, in their act of having relations together is saying, we don't need the other sex. We can find fulfillment within ourself. And so sex is probably one of the biggest idols in our culture. And I didn't e we didn't even touch on the, the reality of porn, right? 
The other one, and this, and this one I'm bringing up because we live in a college town, right? We've got Anderson, we've got Clemson, we've got Tri-County, we've got SWU. Education has become an idol. If you don't go to college, you're going to fall behind. If you don't have a degree, you can't succeed in life, right? And there's a way that what we're asking of education is to save us from boring, boring mundane lives of service. We want to be special. We want to have career fulfillment. In other words, it's all about me. All of these, you can put them back to the self. All idolatry is ultimately a worship of the self. Which means we have to talk about virtues and vices. We can't just sort of say idolatry is bad. The whole shape of this is a spiritual formation component. When we talked about the, the, the virtues and vices, I said that, that pride is over all of the seven deadly sins, all the capital vices. Ultimately, what idolatry is, is it's the ultimate form of pride. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. And from that stems all kinds of vices, like covetousness. Give me more, 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 right? Selfishness, all kinds of vices are at play in this prideful practice of idolatry. Vainglory, we're going to talk about that one in a couple of weeks. The idea of look at me, look at me, look at me, especially in our social media age, right? So if pride, and basically we could attach all the vices to idolatry, what virtues do we need to cultivate? Because remember, it works like this, right? It's a muscle, and the more you practice something, its corresponding opposite gets weaker. What virtues should we be cultivating to combat this reality of idolatry? Humility, Humility right there. That's the big one. So if that's sort of be the one that's at the top, what other virtues are going to flow from that? Service. Service. Okay, is that a virtue or a practice? Yeah, a little bit of both. Yeah, right. A little bit of slippery, which is good, right? Because remember, we're embodied creatures. Virtues aren't just sort of ideas. They're lived out, right? What other virtues do you think we need to practice? Generosity. Generosity. Big one, right? Especially against covetousness, right? How about wisdom? Right? Uh, right reason applied to action. We have to be very wise in this age, right? What about justice, right? If justice is about rendering to each, or his, uh, to each his or her own due, practicing justice orients us to what is right and what is true, especially in a culture that's having us redefine these things. So we practice justice, right? How about courage? This one's a big deal, especially for our young people, our teenagers and our college students who are basically told if you're not having sex, what's wrong with you? The courage to say no, yeah. right? Or to go extend uh, sorrow when you've offended someone. Right. That takes courage. It does. Absolutely. I mean, even courage, I mean, anybody remember the 2008 housing crash? We lived through it, right? What does it mean to have courage to say, actually, I don't need a bigger mortgage, I don't need a bigger house? Like, part of what was happening there was people were taking more and more money that they didn't actually qualify for, and then the whole housing market went upside down, right? The courage to just say no, or wait even. It may not be a no, but just a wait. In which case, then we can practice wisdom, 
and discernment and justice, right? Yeah. So all of these are connected. So we can't talk about idolatry and we can't talk about virtues and vices to pursue without talking about practices. And Chuck sort of got us there with service, right? Some of these are going to overlap quite a bit. In the case of idolatry, I want to suggest the practice that we need to pursue is true worship. If idolatry is false worship, the practice that we need to be, to, to be pursuing is true worship. True worship helps us see clearly. True worship breaks the shackles of delusion, both self-delusion and the delusion that the world is trying to offer us, right? You don't actually need to go to church, Janet. You're fine on your own. You don't need the church, right? The delusion that the world offers. You're okay just the way you are. And this is because true worship, worship of the one true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is always a response to God's self-giving. True worship is a response to God's first action. We can't save ourselves. We didn't save ourselves. We won't save ourselves, right? True worship does not summon God. True worship does not provoke him to action. True worship does not manipulate him into doing our bidding. That's what the idolatry was, particularly in the Old Testament, right? If I pray to this God, then I will get what I want. If I offer the right sacrifice, this God is beholden to me to do what I am asking. True worship, none of that is at play. True worship is always in response to God's saving action. We looked at this last week when we brought the question, why the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God acted first. There was nothing that Israel could do. He had already rescued them. In which case, the Ten Commandments that follow is a life of follow me, respond to this action that I've already done. Living a life framed by the Ten Commandments is not works righteousness. It can be. We can turn the Ten Commandments into an idol. That has happened historically. But that's not the intention. The intention is to shape us to respond to what God has already done for us. He has rescued us from death. In which case, true worship is nothing more than the practice of gratitude or thanksgiving. What does it look like to practice thanksgiving? And we see this idea of sacrifice of thanksgiving all the way through scripture, right? Especially in the Psalms. Right? Get, we, we raise up a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's this fundamental posture of gratitude, as one of my seminary professors said, not obligation, not payment, not an economy exchange that marks true worship. True worship is marked by gratitude. And this is why I like being Anglican. Our liturgy is an embodied practice that shapes us to be to be people who practice gratitude. The word Anglicans use for our Sunday communion service is Eucharist, which means to give thanks. When we come and celebrate, we are people who give thanks. 
I'm teaching an Anglican history class for the Ridley Institute, which is like our diocesan training ground for people who want to be priests and deacons. Um, it's been a bit of a trip because I found out on the Wednesday and it started on the Tuesday. So I'm flying by the seat of my pants. But, but the, the, the students are, are, are watching um, a video by Dr. Ashley Knoll, who does Anglican history specifically from the Reformation period. And he's, he's talking about Thomas Cranmer, who is the author of the, the Book of Common Prayer. He's the one who, who, who got that started for us. And Dr. Knoll says this about Thomas Cranmer. It is gratitude, according to Grant Cranmer, that fuels the Christian life. It is gratitude that fuels the Christian life. And so Cranmer's entire shaping of the Book of Common Prayer is to teach us a posture of thanksgiving. Right from the opening words of scripture, we're giving thanks. Right at the end of our liturgy, we're giving thanks. And so I've just given us an example of that. I think I put this on your handout. I didn't put it in my notes. But in our Eucharist service that we're about to do, there's a part called the Sursum Corda. Sursum Corda means lift up your hearts, right? You all know this liturgy. Can we, can we do a little bit of this just to, to, to remind us and to prepare us to go out and give thanks? Uh, maybe Ryan should do this. <laughs> I'm not ordained. He has, he has a He's got a call, Ryan. Ryan, will you just follow the liturgy on the handout? <laughs> And with your spirit, we lift them up to the Lord. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Put the accent on the word that matters there, Ryan. Can you say that one again, in case people aren't paying attention? Give. What are we giving? There we go. Keep going, Ryan. And then we sing the Sanctus. Thanksgiving and praise. Praise and thanksgiving. Because we worship the God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who saved us from death. Not because we did anything to deserve it. And so our posture is one of humble thanksgiving and praise. Lift up your hearts, Sursum Corda. Let's stand. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make Ryan pray for us, too. Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> oh, God, we do adore you for uh, bringing us out of bondage to sin. We do praise you. We adore you for your sacrifice, for putting up with us in our waywardness. We thank you for the love with which you have called us beloved. Lord, we ask that you would uh, loosen the stranglehold of idols in our lives. Send us so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so control our wills, so fill our imaginations that we might be wholly yours. We want what's real. Make us utterly dedicated to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.